Uh, Cult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. On Friday, the 13th of October, 1307, French soldiers stormed into the homes, castles, and keeps of the Knights Templar and arrested them en masse. Among the knights captured was the Grand Master of the Order, Jacques de Molay, The French king Philippe IV, also known as Philippe le Bel or Philippe the Fair, had been haranguing Pope Clement V with rumors that the Knights Templar were practicing satanic rituals in their castle towers, forcing their brothers to commit sodomy and desecrating the crucifix. Clement was not inclined to listen, and so Philippe took it upon himself to have the Templars rounded up and tried. The Knights served the Pope directly as a quasi-monastic order, and it was a gross infraction against church authority for Philippe to take it upon himself to arrest the Templars. At the close of the 13th century, the Vatican had granted the King of France the ability to try heretics with the aim of stamping out the Cathars, a group of heretics with direct ties to Gnosticism who believed Jesus never took physical form. The church had never intended to extend the king's authority beyond the Cathars, let alone to the Knights Templar, but Philippe used the precedent set by the Cathars to justify his persecution of the Knights. This was all part of the king's larger plot to become not only the temporal, but spiritual leader of France. The Pope was deeply displeased, but Philippe had proven himself a dangerous rival, fearless in the face of church power. He nearly arrested Pope Boniface VIII only two years before, storming into his palace at Agnani, and Clement, a Frenchman by birth, had relocated his court to the French city of Avignon, making him especially vulnerable to Philippe's army. While Clement may have been inclined to excommunicate Philippe, solving the Templar crisis would not be as simple as that. By the end of the month, the king's inquisitors had received at least partial confessions from many of the knights, including the Grand Master Jacques de Molay. But Molay recanted in December, along with many other knights, setting in motion an intense conflict that would culminate in France, burning Molay at the stake. That sounds really intense. That was. Good, good, because, you know, as, as the opener, I'm trying to draw people in, so. Should we expect more of the same? Absolutely, John. I'm glad you asked. There will be so much more of that. More burning at the stake? More burning. Uh, also, the head of uh, God, who may or be may not be Baphomet, and uh, oh. uh, some, some uh, kissing of buttholes. Well, everyone has a hobby, so... Yeah, all right. Let's introduce you guys. All right, cool. I'm glad you're on board. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors. I am joined this day, and most of all of the days, by Olivia Litterall, Grand Master of the Order. Do not burn me at the stake, please. Yeah, this was a long time ago. I think you're all right. I'm just threatened as Grand Master. It kind of scared me. Okay, you think the supreme hierophant would be all right? Well, I don't know. You said he was the Grand Master, and he got burned at the stake. Oh yeah, that's true. He was not the Supreme Hierophant. I'm so a yeah, you're. Bit scared now. I hear you. Yeah. Good thing Philippe's been dead for like eight hundred years. I'm next. <laughs> uh, Johnny Cook, our patron progenitor. Hello. All right. Typical. Typical uh, Johnny introduction there. 
Uh, and uh, Jacob Wheatley, who is the only member of the Alchemical Actors whose name actually includes the word knight, our knight of the dangling serpent. Mm. Huzzah. That's that's about it. <laughs> that's, that's how I'm entering rooms from now on, too, just by saying huzzah. Huzzah. Yeah, yeah I think that'll go over well. On a white horse. Oh, fantastic. Oh. It has yeah. armor as oh. well. Are we talking about any room? Yes. All rooms. Bathrooms. That poor horse has to fit in all these rooms. We make it work. What if a man's at the urinal and he just opens his pants and you walk in and say, Huzzah. Huzzah. Um, I think that's wonderful, John. Wouldn't that be exactly what you want to hear? Well, if he's feeling a little shy, it might help. Right. I wouldn't feel shy at all anymore. I'd honestly be more off-put by the horse, but that's just me. I would let the horse go. But you would be off put by me. <laughs> <laughs> we, the members of the Secret, Secret Order, Order of Alchemical, Alchemical Actors, Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, uh, let's let's give a shout out to our newest uh, f- members of the Patron Circle, Circle of Patrons. Shout them on out. We have uh, Eolria E. I'm sorry, what was that? Eoluria E. Love it. Also, Cass H. And Stinky Pete. Oh, Stinky Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed saying that. You all want to take a turn? Eoluria? Is that the one one you're talking about? (laughs) I'm talking about Stinky Pete here. No, never mind. John got his pick. All right. Uh, We want to thank you guys for joining, guys and gals, for joining our Circle of Patrons. And uh, we want to remind everyone how important it is uh, to keep on on the patron and and, uh, bringing those patron dollars in because they are all we've got supporting us here in our efforts here. Uh, Although you could buy a T-shirt if you don't want to be a patron. That's also an option. March, 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 March. (laughs) <laughs> um, we're squeezing in an extra plug here. I, I got to stick to these other plugs because we got two more things we got to promote here before we move on to the episode. First of all, Shannon Landers, our Instaquisitor, has initiated our Facebook group. Now, this to me felt like a thing that uh, is not a thing, but apparently it is. I read that podcasts have these Facebook groups where people go and talk about the topics on the podcast or just things that are completely unrelated to the podcast that strike their fancy. So we wanted to create that opportunity for our listeners to do whatever Facebook groups do. I'm going to go on there. Olivia, you going to you going to hop on? Yeah, I've never been in a Facebook group and I'm scared, but yeah, excited. Yeah. Right now it's literally just us. Uh, <laughs> oh, we can have our own group right I now? guess. Yeah, but we don't yeah. want that. We want the no, we right, want everybody right. out there to join in. So if you're listening and you have Facebook, go ahead and hop on the Facebook group. See we'll see what happens over there. Could Who be knows? anything. Yeah, I have no idea. Fun. That sounds scary though. Not gonna lie. It's a whole new world. It's part of the pleasure is the fear. The unknown. <laughs> um <laughs> Finally, we want to remind our listeners, if you have the opportunity, uh, wherever you are listening, if you're listening on a a, a platform that does not have reviews, to go ahead and hop on Facebook or someplace else. Let people know that you are enjoying the podcast. Spread the word. The audience is steadily growing, but we could certainly pick up the pace uh, if if you all just let somebody know who might appreciate it what we're up to here and that you're enjoying it. We have had some folks on Instagram sharing us around, letting folks know, um, and we appreciate it. So keep it up. All right, Olivia, close up those plugs. Plug, plug, plug. 
Yeah, they never opened them, so. Where was she on the Titanic? Now they're open. They're open and they're closed. (laughs) Oh, close them. Pluck, pluck, pluck. All right, fine. That was weird. It was a weird ritual we did there. I don't know. It was fine. You don't know? I don't know. If it was weird? No, I I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get to the Knights Templar. It's good that Olivia doesn't know what she's doing because this is the medieval period. Woo! (laughs) So... Now, John, I'm going to ask you an awkward question to start here, uh, because my first section is called The Templars in Outremer. Now, do you remember we were talking about this last week, and you were going to look up why it was called Outremer? I tried. What, what did you... You didn't find anything. I, I couldn't... I forgot how to spell it, honestly. <laughs> so by tried, you mean you just didn't look it up. All right, so Outremer... <laughs> Outremer is the region uh, around the Holy Land uh, that was occupied by Europe uh, for a couple hundred years. Uh, and so John and I were trying to figure out why it was called that. I, I figured because, you know, Outremer just feels like it's out there. <laughs> what? <laughs> the word out is in there. It's, it's out there. It's out there somewhere, I, past Europe. Gonna... I'm more concerned about the second word. Outremer? Yeah. It sounds kind of is... like rim. So like out on the rim. Oh, the outer rim. Y'all, y'all are stretching. Oh, this outer, is not I don't think so. It's, it's I canon. Think we're on it. It's canon. I don't know. I don't. This microphone don't. has figured it out. We're. I'm siding with the hierophant, so I don't. <laughs> it's a good place to be. I have the night though. Well, this and you, is the yeah. night. You guys are going to get burned today. Oh, I'm not going to oh. say. You <laughs> told me grandmaster and the night. So. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so that's why we're. I over was here. told there would be no grandmaster burning. <laughs> Let's get down to it. The Knights Templar were founded on Christmas Day, uh, oh, 1119. Founded on Christmas Day, fun. executed on the or tried on the rounded up and arrested on the 13th of October. Okay, so but it's 1119. We're long before we're going to be arrested. Uh, they were founded as the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ. Before the whole Templar thing came around, that was their original name. Just like we used to call occult confessions, uh, people talking about some stuff that's weird. Remember when we tried that out as the title? Yeah, yeah. it didn't, didn't work well with our focus groups. <laughs> we didn't know what category to put ourselves in. And the acronym was so long. That was really the issue. And you know how we are with acronyms. We couldn't remember the, what it stood no, for. No, we don't no. understand. <clears throat> so the group was full of... Was <laughs> dear listeners who are listening for the first time, I promise we're going to get to the research. A group of... I'm doing it. I'm doing it right now. A group of nine knights led by Hugh of Paines, who had served in the First Crusade to capture the Holy Land, had planned to leave their military lives behind and seek penance for the violence they had done by retiring to a monastery. But King Baldwin II of Jerusalem, only the second European to hold the title of King of Jerusalem, begged them to dedicate their service to the protection of the European pilgrims making their way to his kingdom. The road to Jerusalem was dangerous, patrolled by countless enemies of Christendom, and pilgrims were robbed, raped, and murdered by marauding bandits. The poor knights were true to their name, often riding two men to a horse and dressing in shabby clothes. In 1127, Hugh of Paines set out for Europe to solicit donations to aid the order, recruit new members, and ask for the Pope to officially sanction the order. The popular orator and crusader enthusiast, Bernard of Clairvaux, quickly got behind the Templars, and Hugh's tour was a great success. Huzzah. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) I was hoping you would. Yeah. This is, I say, a new kind of knighthood, and one unknown to the ages gone by. 
It ceaselessly wages a twofold war both against flesh and blood and against the spiritual army of evil in the heavens. When someone strongly resists the foe in the flesh, relying solely on the strength of the flesh, I would hardly remark it, since this is common enough. And when war is waged by spiritual strength against vices or demons, this too is nothing remarkable, praiseworthy as it is, for the world is full of monks. But when the one sees a man powerfully girding himself with both swords and nobly marking his belt, who would not consider it worthy of all wonder, the more so since it has been hitherto unknown? He is truly a fearless knight and secure on every side, for his soul is protected by the armor of faith, just as his body is protected by the armor of steel. He is thus doubly armed and need fear neither demons nor men. Not that he fears death, no, he desires it. Why should he fear to live or die when for him to live is Christ, and to die is gain? Gladly and faithfully he stands for Christ, but he would prefer to be dissolved and to be with Christ, by far the better thing. With Bernard's support, the Templars were endorsed by the Council of Troy, with Pope Arnorius II. The concept of military monks was a relatively new idea. Murder in any capacity was a sin, you guys. But Bernard reframed their action as malicide. The killing of evil itself. So you can Templar kill if you are killing evil itself, and that's what you will be doing, Templars, murdering evil. With the Pope's blessing, their charge extended from the defense of pilgrims to the defense of the Holy Land. So it started out just pilgrims, now we've got the entire Holy Land. The knights observed a strict monastic schedule waking at 4 a.m., attending several church services in the day, renouncing their wills, dressing in all white with the Red Cross, right? Keeping the hair on their heads cut short. John, not not a thing for you. Olivia's not getting up at 4 a.m. You're not cutting your... Olivia goes to bed at 4 a.m. Hey! (laughs) Hey, now. That's why Jacob's the only knight here. Right, he's wearing white. I am. I came prepared today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Never shaving your beard. So that's me. Uh, And not, uh, I do like to trim, not content with the Templars alone. The church ended up forming two military orders for the defense of the Holy Land. Not one, but two. two. The hospitalers were initially formed to provide medical aid and hospitality to pilgrims, sort of like the Templars who were providing protection, not so much, you know, first aid. So, so... The hospitaler, hospitaler's name is kind of like self-intuitive, right? Because they're hospitality. Yeah, I, but like, I, yeah, well, yes. why the Templars, though? Like, why are they called the Templars? Temples. They protect the temple. Which temple? Solomon's. Oh. Kind of, it? yeah. It, it, Solomon's temple does figure into this. Okay. I'm not saying that this is absolutely the reason. I'm <laughs> guessing. It's <laughs> a good question, though. It's just less self-intuitive if they're both like created by the same yeah. sort of person. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. They were initially the poor knights of uh, that guy. Yeah. No guy, just poor knights. So. Poor knights of the temple. No answer. Poor knights of the temple. But they, yeah, they will be involved with the temple, so that, that, that might help there. 
Anyway, I'm guessing. The Hospitallers also took up arms against the church's enemies in Outremer, uh, which, as we were saying at the beginning, was the name given to the lands that Christians captured during the Crusades. Over the next two centuries, the Templars would grow to become a powerful force, both within and beyond the church. They had castles throughout Outremer, most prominently at strategic places on the border, where they might prevent invasions by various Muslim empires that threatened to retake Jerusalem. As one of the few international organizations in the Western world, think about that for a second, one of the few international organizations, and a military organization, right? So this is one of the few powerful organizations not linked to a single country. They also took up the practice of banking, initially in order to help fund the Crusades. So this is really fascinating. They would keep money in ships off the coast, Uh, that they would loan to knights, princes, and kings in order to fund their various efforts in the Holy Land. So this translated to banking operations throughout Europe that kings would periodically raid, but always pay back in order to remain on the right side of the church. So basically, the Templars would set up a bank, and then when the king ran out of money, he would just go and steal all the money, but then because it belonged to the church... He would quietly put it back later so that the Pope didn't get mad. It's like (laughs) taking money out of your mom's purse and then going and using it and then trying to return it before she notices. Yes, pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) Except mom definitely noticed. Right. But yeah, it's the same same idea. And she's like, you better put that back before (laughs) I say something. (laughs) Put that back before I go out with the girls for drinks tonight. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Yep. The Pope's going the Pope's out tonight. That? <laughs> yeah, the Pope imagining. is going out with his girls tonight. <laughs> out on the town. Give me my money back. I have to tip my bartender. He said, I'm buying the rounds tonight. As <laughs> soon as my kid puts the money back in the purse. Everyone's having apple teenies. <clears throat> so things went more or less like this for about two centuries, with the knights providing much needed assistance in seven separate crusades. Seven. Seven. The enemy shifted as Muslim empires rose and fell. The Fatimids, the Turks, finally the Mamelukes all chipped away at the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. The ultimate downfall of Europe in Outremer began with a war between two Muslim rivals. This was Egypt and Damascus. The Templars favored Damascus, who was generally friendlier to Christians than their rivals in Egypt. To defeat the Damascans, the Egyptian sultan Al-Salib Ayyub had purchased a large army of slaves called Mamelukes. So, these were Kipchak Turks. Don't ask me what that means or why they're named that, John. The the Kipchak Turks? The Kipchak Turks. The Kipchak Turks. The Kipchak... The Turks from the steppes of Russia... The Kipchaks. Anyway, he also purchased the assistance of mercenaries, another group of Russian Turks called the Koretsmians, who had been displaced by the Mongols. 12,000 of these soldiers, Russian Turks of various kinds, swept into Syria. But unable to bridge the wall of Damascus, they turned their attention to Jerusalem, where they massacred everyone who could not retreat to the inner walls of the city. You see this stuff on, like, Game of Thrones and uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings, right? That you try to get into that inner citadel. 
Siege the castle. Siege the castle, yeah. So they this was for reals. So they retreated into the inner walls of Jerusalem, and they then, yes, laid siege to them. After six weeks, uh, the this army, the Egyptians, offered safe passage to the 6,000 defenders of the citadel. But when the defenders emerged, the Mameluke army slaughtered all of them, oh. except oh for 300 of them. And they razed the entire place to the ground, tearing up the bones of the kings of Jerusalem and demolishing the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Mama, look. <laughs> what? What? Mama, look. Mama, look. So they did it for mom, is what yeah. you're saying. They yeah, did mama it. Mama, Egypt. They wanted to get mom to look at Jerusalem burning. Yeah, it, and so it did. This really comes down to a parental problem. <laughs> Over the next, Russia. <laughs> Russia was the yeah dad. Russia was dad, Egypt was mom, and this is what we get. Kipchaks. Over the next fifty years, the Mamelukes continued to wreak havoc throughout the European Kingdom of Jerusalem, pushing the Templars and the Crusading armies all the way to the coast and finally into Cyprus. Acre, the last European stronghold on Outremer, fell in 1291, ending the Templars' role as defenders of the Holy Land and abandoning the Templars to the whims of a Europe in the first throes of what would be significant political and cultural change. Over the next decade, the Templars attempted to broker a final crusade. The Mongols offered to give the Christians the Holy Land if they would help them defeat the Mongmalukes. This is a big offer. The the Mongols, I make this point in, in one of the classes I teach, came very close to conquering Europe, but for some infighting politically, the Mongols would have kept going and, and basically taken over many of the European countries, probably. They were a formidable army. So when they offered to help the Crusaders, this was huge. They they if anyone could defeat these terrifying Russian Turks, it was these guys. But the Templars set up a base at the Isle of Ruad. They had high hopes of raising another crusader army to defeat the occupying enemy. And the Mongols arrived. Ten years later. <clears throat> yeah. Did they just... Why? Uh, they, just, they had other things to do. They were busy. <laughs> but how did it said, get off the... Bottom of their 10-year list, I so guess. So they were like, hey, yeah, we'll totally help you guys with your crusade. Those Turks are really cheesing us off too uh we'll be there we'll be okay you guys get started and we'll be right there we will be right there you know how that is maybe the templars didn't just tell them when they were starting (laughs) so they they were just sitting at their base and like late start time yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) they were down in the basement playing video games eating cheetos templars are up on the first floor shouting down hey you guys i think we're gonna get going here pretty soon why even show up after 10 years, though? Don't they just assume? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, they didn't get the memo because they're Mongols. Oh. Yeah, they're not big on memos. <laughs> they just have an aversion to memos. An aversion to memos. Enough to remember after 10 years to go back. I would assume back. so. Yeah. Well, true. <laughs> so in the year 1302, uh, the Mamelukes laid siege to the Isle of Ruad, wearing down the Templars who finally surrendered on promise of safe passage. Uh-oh, you know how this goes. The Mamelukes, always inclined to lie, betrayed the Templars again, just as they had in Jerusalem, murdering or enslaving every night on the tiny island. You know, the saying goes, fool me once, shame on me. We can't be fooled again. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it goes. You remember the Bush years. I'm delighted. 
You're so political right now. Wow. <laughs> no, we're, we're practically a political podcast. I think we should maybe change our category. That is going to confuse a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Just mid-episode switch it. <laughs> we're sandwiched between the Sanders people and uh, oh freaking gosh. Rush Limbaugh. Okay, is he over here? Does he have a podcast? I just assumed. The music's too loud. <laughs> Does Bernie Sanders have a podcast? There are people, yeah. I was reading about these podcasters who are like Sanders people. They call themselves Dirty Sanders people. Out of some, That's there's dirty involved. Yeah, it's definitely. Stuff, right? Anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> BS. So let's talk some medieval politics, shall we? I would uh, love to. Huzzah. We're on to Philippe the Fair. Our Templars have been kicked out of the Holy Land. They are stuck floating around Europe uh, without uh, pots to piss in. Here we go. They do. They actually have pots. They have several pots. So there's they have castles, and they're like set up in different parts of, of Europe. But their whole purpose had been the Holy Land, and that was the center of their power, and they were organized there. So now they're more scattered throughout Europe. So it's the year 1300, and uh, we're going to get to my man, Pope Boniface VIII. It's a guy I talk about quite a bit in classes. Uh, he declared a, a jubilee, marking the 1300th anniversary of the birth of Christ, because it was the year 1300. So he did the math. Uh, and he, he promised a remission of sins for anyone who visited him at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. You got this? So he's trying to get that big crowd. So there he was, sitting on the throne of Constantine, holding a sword and a scepter and wearing his crown, and he cried out to the crowd, I am Caesar! Come, dear peasantry, and glory in me! Are they glory? It doesn't look like they're as into it as I would have hoped. Glory harder, peasants! That your pope may relish in your glorying! Pass around the collection plate. We brought the big plates this time, right? They're getting better. I feel a little relish coming on. All right, so I made some of that up, that quote there. But uh, he does, he did say, I am Caesar. That is historical, right? So That's a lot. A little power hungry there. Yeah, it's a little conceited. <laughs> and it was a crowd of over 200,000 that gathered, which is not easy in medieval Europe. That's like almost everyone. Yeah. That's... A- <laughs> <laughs> That's most of the people. Everybody there should Everyone be else is dead. Up. Europe is just a bunch of empty farmhouses now. <laughs> Everyone's with Boniface. <laughs> okay, so the money that they collected uh, was put directly at Boniface's disposal. The message to the temporal kings of Europe was clear through this exercise. Boniface was attempting to supplant their, this worldly supremacy, right? Their power on earth by declaring himself sovereign over things both spiritual and temporal throughout Western Christendom. The cry, I am Caesar, the holding of the sword, right? I often teach Boniface in my Western theater and ritual course, as I mentioned, one of the major figures uh, in the decline of the medieval world. In my opinion, Boniface is, you know, the the medieval world was going to decline, the Renaissance was going to replace it, but I think of Boniface as this pivotal character in all of this. He was the pope who showed the cracks in the church's authority and power. His predecessor, Celestine V, had resigned from the papal throne after only five months, whereas... Your average pope generally died on the throne. So that was really odd. Strange that we had a pope resign. So everyone's already got their hackles up. They're like, what's going on here? We have a pope who who checked out. This is fishy. 
probably the reason that this happened is because Celestine V, and we don't need to talk about him very much today, and he's kind of confusing because mostly we're going to talk about the Pope after Boniface, whose name was Clement V. So I apologize for history there. But Celestine really liked being a monk, and he was really anxious to go back to monking. So... This was an, he, he, he took the papacy and he was like, this isn't fun. I, I much preferred monking. Can I, can I just go home? He didn't know? <laughs> he, no, I guess he, he was a monk, so he hadn't heard anything about it. They just, about to say, that information didn't really make it to him. Didn't make it to the monastery, yeah. So Do some research. Plucked him up, brought him over to the Vatican, and he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa you guys. Man, this is a lot. What happened to all my silent contemplation and uh, gardening? I don't. When when do I get to do that? And they were why like, "There's so many people talking. <laughs> yeah, why is everyone wearing red? What's uh, happening here?" But like, can he just like? Isn't he in danger now? If well, he you're just... really not supposed to resign, but yeah, he he did. He did resign. Wow. And uh, to Boniface's credit, he just he didn't he didn't pursue him afterwards. Just let okay, because Boniface took his place. So the resignation made the whole affair seem like some sort of political coup, and that Boniface, uh, who assumed the papal throne directly after him, was the orchestrator of this coup, right? Oh, if, some, if we have somebody suddenly resign, it's the guy who replaces him that we're most suspicious of. What's right. going on here? What did he you do? scheming or something. Yeah, something's going on. And he didn't kill him, though, Olivia, so there's that. Great guy. <laughs> so Great guy. Go back to being a Good monk. job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so once on the throne, uh, Boniface was not a popular guy. The poet Dante accused Boniface of simony, or selling church offices for a profit. In the eighth circle of his inferno, a sinner being scalded by hot flames on his legs and feet mistakes the narrator of the poem for Boniface. Are you already standing? Already standing there, old Boniface? The book has lied to me for several years. Are you so quickly sated with the riches for which you did not fear to take by guile the lovely lady, then to violate her? The lovely lady in Dante's uh, stanza here is the church, which Dante believes Boniface has usurped power over in order to make money. Uh, Boniface regularly promoted his own relatives within the church, enriching his household and arguably made backroom deals like any politician. But the Pope is meant to at least be perceived as being above politics, serving God alone. The cracks in that perception opened a door for Philippe le Bel, Philippe the Fair, to attempt to supplant the Pope in France, ultimately assuming authority not, o- not only over the French government, but also the country's church. So we got, so th- this is, these are going to become our major actors here. It's worth taking a moment. The two opposing powers right now at this moment are Philippe and Boniface. So mm-hmm. it, the consistency here is that it's going to be the king of France against the pope. And the king of France will be Philippe for a while, uh, at least through a couple of popes here. Okay, you got me? So it's really Philippe trying to horn in on the Pope's power. And he's looking at Boniface's antics as an opportunity to convince people that he is entitled to this, you know, upgrade in authority. 
So, the turn of the 14th century was a time when kings, especially Philippe the Fair, were seeking absolute sovereignty over their kingdoms. Philippe is not alone. A lot of kings are looking to become the absolute power. The sort of the concept of nation is being born in these people. In Philippe's eyes, the Catholic Church, which had, which had substantial property and a whole hierarchy of clergy members and monks and soldiers in the forms of the Templars and the Hospitallers who counted the Pope and not the king as their leader. These people were a direct challenge to the king's authority, because they were literally in his backyard, but could care less what he thought. They belonged to the Pope. To put it another way, Philippe did not want to share power with the Pope in France. He wanted to control France himself. All of Europe was moving toward nationalization as well under a set of powerful central monarchs, and Philippe wanted to be that ultimate authority at home. So, Boniface was actually going against the tide. Remember, I am Caesar. Europe is pushing toward the secular, powerful kings and nations with a lot of authority, and Boniface just like with his hand fingers in his ears is screaming, I'm the king, I'm the best, I'm in charge of all of you, and it's not going over well. So he's swimming against the tide when he's trying to consolidate temporal power under his papal throne. Philippe then starts messing with him. First, he arrests his friend, Bernard Cesset, Bishop of Parmier. In 1301, Bernard was brought before Philippe's court on charges of conspiring against the crown and heresy for saying that St. Louis, the crusading King Louis IX, Philippe's grandfather, was in hell. <gasps> Not St. Louis. No. Oh my God. He was, he's in Missouri. Everybody knows that. St. Louis. Oh. <laughs> that was nice. Thank you. Uh, Boniface, Judy, Boniface demanded that Bernard be sent to Rome to, to go ahead and handle these heretical charges himself. The Pope wanted to deal with it, but Philippe was not quick to follow the Vicar of Christ's orders. So Boniface was enraged by Philippe's bold actions against one of his own bishops, who also just how happened to be one of his best buds. So he excommunicated anyone keeping... Now listen to this, the clergy of the church from returning to Rome. So he made this order saying his best bud, the bishop of Pamiers, has got to come to Rome. And then in, Philippe's like, nope, I'm not sending him. And then Boniface, in sort of passive-aggressive way, is like, well, anyone, not, not Philippe specifically, but anyone who wants to keep my bishops from coming home to Rome is excommunicate. Might be you, Philippe, but I'm not saying you specifically. <laughs> I'm not pointing fingers, but... <laughs> I've planned this for a while. This is nothing... Yeah, this was, yeah, this has been in the works. Yeah. <laughs> so, Philippe then countered, right? We're going back and forth here. By sending his lawyer and counselor to attack and arrest the Pope. He served the Pope? <laughs> yes. Oh, but it gets worse, Olivia. Oh, it gets so much worse. He sends his lawyer... <laughs> to attack the Pope and arrest the Pope on charges of heresy. He wants to arrest the Pope for heresy at the Pope's palace in the French city of Agnani. So to, to the Pope's detriment, he, what is he doing in France, right? You're fighting with the King of France. Don't go hang out at your French palace. Pick a different palace. Oi. Boniface VIII excommunicated the men arresting him. And Listen to this. They slapped him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) 
He was 73. They slapped the 73-year-old Pope Boniface. In the right, Boniface. Right in his Boniface. Jeez. It's not funny because after three days, uh, the king's counselors let the Pope go and he died the next month of a violent fever. Oh my gosh. He slapped the fever into him. <laughs> he slapped him into the next life. <laughs> oh, no. oh. oh, it's true though. Boniface is not a popular guy, uh, but that slap is so ridiculous. And that brings us to today's segment, uh, the words you may have been wondering about. Ooh, I'm still working on uh, something yeah, there. Supposed to, okay, all right. Next time. It's in process. It'll be good. Okay. Uh, today's word is heresy. <gasps> heresy. Heresy. You want to do one, John? Heresy. Oh, that was good. That was nice. John's playing too. For this, I turn to the Catholic Encyclopedia, who in turn asks St. Thomas. Thomas lays out two choices for the would-be heretic. So you want to be a heretic. Here's how you can do it. First, you you can choose not to believe in Christ. Oh, That's easy. This is the path of the Jew and the pagan. Arguably, the Templars' alleged heresy would have fallen under this first category. The second is by restricting belief to certain points of Christ's doctrine, meaning both what you find in the Bible and the accepted interpretations of the church. Thomas says, the believer accepts the whole deposit as proposed by the church. The heretic accepts only such parts of it as commend themselves to his own approval. So, when Boniface accused Philippe of being a heretic and vice versa, it was on this second point, picking and choosing what they want to believe, not taking the whole church package together. See what I mean? So you're like, I don't know, if you're like, okay, I buy all this church stuff, but I like oral sex. You're a heretic. Heretic. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) I don't actually know if the church has an opinion about oral sex. They don't. Cool. Of course, uh, accusing the Pope of heresy uh, is kind of a tricky theological prospect since the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth, so technically the Pope is making the rules, but uh, that's not a problem we can even begin to solve in a word you may have been wondering about, so let's go ahead and close this up. And it's done, because Olivia didn't have a thing yet. All right, it's closed. (laughs) Boniface VIII was replaced by Benedict XI, whose pontificate lasted less than a year. Sort of like... Is that your Pope certificate? Your your Pope-tificate. But in that year, Benedict managed to let Philippe off the papal hook by rescinding all of Boniface's sanctions against him. Still, Philippe the Fair was not satisfied and put the next Pope, the French Clement V, in his medieval crosshairs. It was like a crossbow, I guess, in my vision of this. Philippe demanded that the new Pope, Clement V, lift the anathemas on his counselors, including his lawyer, Nogarot, and have Boniface declared a heretic. See how so he wants to clear his name in history. Is this only is this one pope after or two? Now we're two popes in because oh, we wow. lost a pope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This has been a while. The one pope he like let Philippe off the hook and then he died right. and then we replaced him with okay. the next one. So now we're on Clement V. Not to be confused with Celestine the Fifth, who was before. Anyway. All right. So now we're on Clement V versus Philippe. So Philippe is saying, I want you to declare Boniface a heretic and clear me of everything. Even though Philippe's been cleared, he now wants his lawyer to be cleared. He's digging deep. All right. Having a dead pope declared a heretic involved exhuming his body, by the way, tying it to a stake and burning it. So this was going to be a big event. 
But the effort of disinterring a dead pope was well worth it to Philippe because it would mark the king of France as officially righteous in his persecution of Boniface. It would be a big public relations win. This is a really big grudge. Yeah, Philippe did not mess around. Shouldn't he be running his country? No, he's busy doing this. This is ridiculous. This is major hot. It's like me in the podcast. I should be teaching, but I'm doing this. Well, you still teach. That's true. He still runs France, but he spends a lot of time on this other thing. Okay, so at the time, uh, Philippe was attempting to undermine the dead Boniface. He was also passing through uh, his anti-Templar rumors. He was creating anti-Templar rumors. Here we go. Knights are coming back into it. I know, we did a lot of medieval politics. Now we're getting into the... I forgot we were... We were talking about the Knights and Templars. Templars for a second. Okay, so the specific accusations that he would eventually make through the French Inquisitor included a series of five charges. One... To be admitted into the order, the Templars had to submit to a secret ritual requiring them to deny Christ three times, each time insulting his body by spitting on a crucifix. Two, during the initiation, they had to kiss the officiant, not on the mouth, but on the anus. Three, members were told not to refuse to engage in sodomy with any members who solicited it with them. Four, the Templars worshipped an idol. Uh, The idol was a head described in many different ways, uh, depending on who you're asking. It was the head of the old one, the head of God, or the head of Baphomet. It might have been a mummified human head or a head cast in gold or silver. Uh, Kay Laidler in The Head of God from 1998 uh, suggests that the head came from the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaton, who was actually Moses, whose followers traveled to Europe. That's all sort of crazy, though. That was a lot to unpack. That's crazy. Yeah, let's not get into that. So something I had, I had uh, learned about or happened on, yeah, it happened on was uh, that that head that the Templars apparently were worshiping was uh, the head of the original Grand Master of the Order, Hugh of Pain. Yeah, yeah, head of pain, the pain head. <laughs> <laughs> That's pain an interesting in the theory. Oh. Yeah, and uh, one one other theory was um, uh, some people thought it was the head of Baphomet, or that was the rumor. Um, there, there are uh, some people that thought, as they were looking into it, that it was a bad mistranslation of Muhammad. Well, because they spent a lot of time warring with uh, sort of the armies of Islam, that they had somehow gotten their hands on Muhammad's head. And had possibly some of them um, converted to Islam. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, we had, uh, I, I think, and a listener right That would right make in sense with the, uh, the accusations, too, of spitting on the cross or doing all sorts of heretical things. Sure. Cool. Uh, So in this version of events, the head was actually the head of God, showing that God was a man. It came to the Templars through the Cathars who received it from Mary Magdalene. Okay, so the head is a fun thing. Like, it's weird that they had a head, and it pops up in a lot of different occult conspiracy theories. Uh, But let's get to, there's actually one more charge. I said there were five charges. Let's get to the fifth one. Five! The priest of the order celebrated mass without consecrating the host. Another attack on the body of Christ. You cannot celebrate mass with unconsecrated wafers. It just isn't done. The Templars, who were naturally a little offended at these intimations, these rumors being bandied about about them, requested an inquisitio veritatis, or inquiry to get at the truth. When Skanksby spread spread nasty lies about you, this is what you do. Oh, oh my shit. gosh. 
So you're not expecting that? No. That's what Nobody you do. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Or the French one. Yes. Or the Inquisitato Veritatis. I'm going to have to pull that out sometime. Inquisitio <laughs> Veritatis. That's what, you, yes. that's what you yell at that skank. Can Can you write it down for me so I you just You yell, <laughs> Inquisitio Veritatis. Not your skank? No, it could be a skank. The, the king uh, moved to start his own Inquisition. Uh... Uh, of the knights before the Pope swooped in and took the whole matter out of French hands to place it under church authority. So basically the knights are like, we want, we demand, we demand the truth. And the King is like, well, I'm going to give you the truth. And the Pope's like, no, I'm going to give you the truth. So everybody's rushing to figure this out. So Philippe really wants it to be the truth that all these things he made up are the, what happened. So uh, he has the knights seized on, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the 13th of October in 1307 in a grand coordinated arrest, a gross infraction against the church's prerogatives that mirrored the arrest of the Bishop of Pamiers in 1301. Boniface's best bud, remember? Mm. So this is basically, Philippe just loves to do these arrests, but this one is like a super effort. Like there's people everywhere arresting people it's like in the godfather when they do that coordinated attack on everybody Uh yeah this is what's happening they have to like split screens and cut away a lot in order to get all the action that's going on i appreciate his theatrics for all of this yeah (laughs) it was nothing if not theatrical okay so confessions followed and then recantations and the pope suspended the french inquisitors in an attempt to get control of what was a rapidly devolving situation things are just going out of control now because they're they're under arrest and they're confessing to all this anus-based stuff and then they're rescinding it's a mess so in may 1308 philippe traveled to poitiers where the curia was residing so the cardinals right who make decisions uh, and negotiated with the pope for two months over the fate of the templars and boniface's alleged heresy philippe was out for blood and fire in both cases and anxious to use this as a wedge to gain full sovereignty over france Clement agreed to acknowledge the confessions already received in return for jurisdictional authority over the next stages of the Templars' trial. In October 1311, the Council of Vienne assigned to judge the Templars deemed the evidence against the Templars seriously lacking, all that is except the French contingent. Under pressure by Philippe, Clement dissolved the council and left the fate of the Templars in the hands of French ecclesiastical authorities, who were under Philippe's thumb. You got all this machination here? Yeah? Did you follow me? Yes. <laughs> so the, the, the Pope is like, I'm going to put this big council together. They're going to figure out if the Templars are guilty of anus kissing and such things and having a head. Right. Uh, but then the French contingent's the only one that won't vote with them. And Philippe's like, hey, Pope, I don't like these fair and balanced trials you're having i demand a french trial only and clement's like ah oh, fine whatever just get off my back so on march 14 1314 the french ecclesiastical authorities condemned the templars committing four of their leaders to life in prison two of those leaders the grand master jacques de molay and geoffrey de charny the templars preceptor of normandy rescinded their confessions and were burnt at the stake that same night as relapsed heretics that's the fast track to the stake, is to relapse your heresy. I'm surprised they didn't kill the people that even confessed. Well, if you confess, then the church will just, you know, torture and imprison you and try to save your soul. But if you recant your confession, there's nothing we can do for you, and we'll burn you like Joan of Arc. What if you didn't confess at all? 
would you just automatically be? Well, there were die? some. Well, we'll get to that. There were some who absolutely did not confess, but that was not really in France. France, they squeezed confessions out of most of oh, them. I see. Uh, so Malay, let's talk a little bit about Jacques de Malay because he's an interesting character. Uh, he was our grandmaster of the Templars, Olivia's namesake. He was born at uh, Rahon Jura around 1244. He was an unlettered soldier and could neither read nor write, but served as grandmaster of the Templars beginning around 1292. Wow. Yeah, see? See how far you can get? You don't need to learn to read. That's what I tell my students. You don't have to learn to read. You can go on to lead the Templars. Uh, And then they're like, what are the Templars? And I'm like, oh, they've been gone for 700 years. You should probably learn to read and write. Uh, along with Clement V, sorry, he created, which is tough because they're in college and they really should know how to read and write by now. <laughs> along with Clement V, he created what some consider the most viable plan for the Eighth Crusade, but unfortunately for Christendom, the plan was never realized. After his imprisonment at the hands of the French king, he may have circulated a wax tablet telling the other Templars to retract their confessions. When he was tried by nine cardinals on behalf of the Pope, he was supposed to have repeated his confession, but when the confession was read to him before another commission in November 1309, he reacted with surprise, made the sign of the cross twice, and said, Would to God that such scoundrels might receive the treatment they receive from the Saracens and Tartars! This suggested that the original group of cardinals may have invented his original confession. In short, exactly what Malay confessed to is in question. But we're sure whatever it was, he recanted and was burned for being a relapsed heretic. By most accounts, Jacques de Molay met his end stoically. But a legend of a curse of Jacques de Molay grew out of these events. You've heard of this, John? Yeah. Uh, when he was getting burned, he kind of cursed the French king and the Pope. Yes, yes. Before he died, he was said to have predicted an end to Philippe and Clement within the year, and perhaps an end to papal and monarchical power in France before the end of the millennium. And the next month, Clement, who'd been suffering from a long-term illness, was dead. In November, Philippe suffered a stroke during a hunt in the forest of Halat and died a few weeks later. Centuries later, this is a bit of a stretch, centuries later, the French Revolution would, in one fell stroke, wipe out both the monarchy and the church, leaving France a secular republic. That's how you gotta go. Like, (laughs) honestly. Cursing everyone. Curse everyone. And then in 200 years, three, 400 years. (laughs) Okay. 400 years later, I'm gonna get you. I'll get you. You won't care by then, but I'll be there. The curse of Molay aside, the Illuminati conspiracy theory that places the Templars in the middle of a satanic anti-religious plot to undermine Christianity makes no sense in light of these actual events. So let's get down to conspiracy. That's what we're here for, right? The conspiracy about the Templars is that they were, that all of these charges are true, that they were a secret satanic group carrying forward this anti-religious ideology. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories about the Templars because of this. In his History of the Templars, Michael Haig points to a landmark discovery made by Barbara Frail, an Italian researcher working in the Vatican. Frail, whose findings were published in 2004, discovered that Clement V had actually absolved Jacques de Molay and other Templar leaders of the crimes the French king had accused them of. On the 14th of August, 1308, three cardinals left the papal court at Poitiers and traveled to meet with the Templars at Chinon. 
They conducted their own three-day trial with none of the king's representatives present. The cardinals reported back to the pope, who, on their advice, issued their absolution. The Templars were, in the eyes of the church, in no way guilty of practicing satanic rites or worshiping false idols or conspiring against Christianity. The conspiracy theorist, Nesta Helen Webster, had no way of knowing about this when she construed her theory of a vast Illuminati plot spanning Western history into the 1920s. See our last episode for this. But it pretty well disproves her argument that the Templars carried forward a nefarious Illuminati plot. They were literally absolved by the Pope himself, who did not believe that they were black magicians of any kind. Still, even without this direct documentary evidence, our conspiracy theorists should have known better. It's clear that Philippe, with his lust for power, was the real enemy of Christianity. He had no spiritual aims in his inquisitions, only secular ones. And if Philippe was wrong and opposed the Templars, then the Templars must have been right, if not absolutely righteous. According to the historian Elaine Demerger, the Templars were a scapegoat for all the international military orders which no longer had a place in a nationalized Europe, preventing the advancement of powerful centralized monarchies. You just don't want like an international army hanging out in your country. Going back to an earlier point. The drama that played out between Philippe, Clement, and Jacques was part of a much larger shift. The Renaissance was dawning in Italy, and Protestantism would not be very far away. The absolute authority of the church was breaking down, and the Templars were simply among the first of the Vatican's snowballing losses. And this is the best way to make sense of the seeming contradiction in the conspiracy. Although Philippe the Fair was a clear enemy of the church. Wait, what? I forgot that his name had fair in it. When was he ever fair? He was white. Oh. Literally taking property from God's servants and appropriating spiritual power onto a secular crown. Conspiracy theorists who believe the Templars were bringing evil forward in time, right? Part of this evil chronology, like... Nesta Helen Webster, label Philippe as a hero, as they call the Templars villains, right? Because he was the one to bring them down. This seems strange until we reflect on the narrowness of their conception of religion. Philippe brought down the Cathar heresy. That was his first claim to fame and struck a major blow to the Catholic Church's absolute power over Western Europe, paving the way for Protestantism. The Illuminati conspiracy theory captures all the enemies of Protestantism, demanding a strict view of the universe as created by God, contra the Cathars and their Gnostic forebears, and labeling the Catholics as another kind of heretic, operating outside the strict parameters of Lutheran Christianity. And so, Philippe, even though he was a venal enemy of organized religion at the time, and white, is a hero to the 12th Uh, to the 20th and 21st century Protestant conspiracy theorist. Obviously. That's messed up, I think. No? Nobody? No, that's a lot to unpack, to be honest. But do you get it, right? (laughs) Yeah. Catholics bad, Cathars bad, all of these people are bad because they're not good Protestants, and it was the popes standing in the way of Protestantism. So anybody who was going to kill a bunch of Templars and mow down some popes and slap them all around is good with our modern Protestant. He's the hero. He's the hero of the Protestant conspiracy theorist. Hmm. All right. So the Templars aren't part of an occult conspiracy to bring down religion. We've we've proved that, right? Uh, My work here is done. Uh, But if I really want to be thorough, 
there's a few more rocks to turn over in the Templar's medieval garden. Or should I say the Rosslyn Chapel? Garden, that is. Tom? Tom? You out there? Tom's a listener from the United Kingdom. Tom? Sent me a, sent me a little video telling me how to pronounce that, and I'm hoping that I uh, got it right. Rosslyn. Anyway. Uh, let's get to those Templar legends. This is the fun stuff. Ooh. You guys got through all that medieval politics and stuff, so we do really the fun. Did. Do the fun stuff. We made it. How many years did we go through? Uh, about two hundred. Wow. Yep. According to legend, the Templars take three paths after the death of Jacques de Molay. In one, they travel to Scotland, where they join up with the founders of Scottish Freemasonry. John, weren't you looking into this a bit? Yes. Cool. <laughs> Do you have anything to add? Uh, just that um, in the 1700s, 1800s, there was uh, some artifacts that were supposedly found linking them, but they were found to only be from the 1800s. And were they at the Rosslyn chap- Chapel? It doesn't sound super familiar. Because hmm. this is... Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about it. Maybe we'll see if it rings a bell. Uh, in another uh, of these paths, so three paths, remember, first path goes to Scotland, where they found Scottish Freemasonry. In another, Jacques de Molay passes on the role of Grand Master to a man named Jean Larmanius, and Larmanius goes on to found French Freemasonry. And in yet another, they travel to the New World, America, uh, and get up to all sorts of mischief here, burying treasures and all sorts of weird stuff. So uh, the Larmanius theory uh, only really goes as far as the Neo-Templar order that really has no meaningful connection to actual historical Templars, uh, what they were, what they did. So that's it. So there are these Neo-Templars that exist, and they just created this as a backstory. So done with that. The other two theories are a bit more bizarre, and they have their roots in the Rosslyn Chapel. The Rosslyn Chapel is located in Scotland, south of Edinburgh, and was founded by Saint Cl- the, the St. Clairs in the mid-15th century. Uh, St. Clairs, sort of, uh, we've anglify- anglicized that to Sinclair. Sinclair family. Oh, okay. So it's the St. Clair family, Sinclair family, same family. Ooh, cool. So the idea that Templars uh, made their headquarters or their hiding place a Rosslyn has popped up in a Batman comic from the 1980s, and more famously in the nonsensical, but fun, Da Vinci Code. You guys know that? Know that code? I saw it a long time ago. You seen them codes? Tom Hanks? Hanksing around? Coding it up? Angels and demons? Gotta love it. Is that that (laughs) him playing Leonardo da Vinci? Yes, he plays Leonardo da Vinci in the Da Vinci Code. Yep. Cool. Glad we cleared that up. (laughs) Somebody get out there, put that on the Wikipedia page. Uh, So the St. Clair... (laughs) IMDB. Uh, the St. Clair or Sinclair family uh, are said to have secretly passed down the title of Grand Master through the centuries, and the chapel allegedly copies the floor plan of Solomon's temple and includes carvings suggestive of Templar iconography, like the depiction of a rider with two horses. Or two riders on one horse? Anyway... Also, there are bodiless heads and headless bodies, which suggest uh, the idol the Templars were rumored to have worshipped. Remember the head? Yeah. That head. Here at Rosslyn Chapel, the knights are supposed to have hidden away their treasure. That they had treasure is a matter of historical record, since they used it as part of their banking operation. Within that treasure, some believe, is the Holy Grail. This is where the History Channel comes in. 
Also Tom Hanks as, as Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. Also Tom Hanks on the History Channel. Yes. <laughs> he will solve history, also climate change. He's here Inception. for us. <laughs> yes, he's in our dreams. He's Romeo. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Hanks plus Juliet. Leonardo da Vinci plus Juliet. The French poet Chrétien de Troyes is widely credited with creating the idea of a grail in his unfinished poem Parsifal, although for him it was more of a plate than a cup. Fun fact. So the original Holy Grail... It was a plate. Yeah, it's just a plate. That's it, wild. But I thought a grail was like a like a I thought a grail was like a like a like a cup. We came up with that later. Oh. Uh, in the 13th century epic poem Parzival, not to be confused with Parsifal, that's the French version version. This is the more the German version. This was written by Wolfram von Eschenbach based on the unfinished French poem Parsifal. Uh, the grail is guarded by a group of men described as Templison. This gave rise to the legend that the Templars had hidden the grail somewhere. So I just did a little genealogy there. The reason we believe the Templars have the grail is because this French guy uh, wrote about a grail in his poem Parsifal. And then this German guy took that poem, rewrote it, stuck some people in it who he called the Templison. And then we're like, oh, so Templars, we're, we're reading between the lines here. Is that like the French pronunciation of Percival? From yeah. King Arthur? Parzival, yeah. Percival, yeah. yeah. Yep. <clears throat> so, it's probably not the Templars, though, the Templison. Uh, because in Essenbach's poem, uh, the Grail Knights wear a turtle dove rather than a Templar red cross, which is the most identifiable symbol of the order. We literally talked about it last episode. The first thing Olivia thought of was their fancy clothes. <laughs> so, wrong outfit. Essenbach is not actually referring to the Knights Templar, and it was a complete misnomer that we ascribed the Grail to them at all, because it's just these two guys making up poems in the first place. Still, the theory continues that the Grail may have been a magical fertility charm held by the Gnostics and the Nascenes. The Templars were believed to have protected the Nascenes and the Grail as part of the responsibilities they assumed in the Holy Land, for some reason. This is not necessarily history. This is just rumor at this point. What is that group that you're saying? They're they're like Gnostics. They're Gnostic-esque, oh. but they're medieval Gnostics. Oh, okay. Uh, so apparently, this the theory goes that the Templars, part of their duties were to defend the Holy Land, defend the pilgrims, and also hang out with these guys who just so happened to be holding on to the Holy Grail. And we just let them do that, and we didn't take it from them because in Europe, we didn't like to take stuff from people that we really wanted. We just let them hold on to it and protected them. That's a lie. Took a lot of stuff. Remember those kings just walking into the Templar's house, taking their treasure and walking out? There's no reason why they would have just let these guys hold on to the Holy Grail. It's ridiculous. Okay, but anyway, if the Templars didn't get their hands on the Grail through the Nascenes, it could have come to England with Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Jacob, you know this guy? Yeah, that's Jesus. That's Jesus' dad. Man credited with burying him after his crucifixion, yeah. Yep. Uh, and then from England, the Grail came to be hidden at Rosslyn Chapel. Still, more weirdness arises from the chapel regarding the Templars' time in North America. Remember, the chapel is covered in carvings. Well, according to some people who have looked at these carvings, some of them resemble unusual vegetation, namely maize, which is the American word for corn, and aloe cactus. Oh. These are plants that Christopher Knight and Robert Lomas, who are people who make arguments about plants, specifically in the year 1996, claim are native to the Americas. 
They are right about corn. Corn is native to the Americas, but the carvings described as looking like corn only look like corn if you think they look like corn. Otherwise, <laughs> they could look like so many other things. Mm. Yeah. Just think about corn for a second. Think about all the things we could confuse it with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, aloe, though, uh, as the uh, as Michael Haig points out in his book about the Templars, is actually an African succulent. So, swing and a miss. Africa, we were actually literally in Africa with the Templars, so this is not a surprise. We've been connected up to Africa for a long time. So, the Templars don't need to have gone to America and then come back and carved a bunch of corn in the side of this chapel and aloe. Okay. Isn't this... It does seem weird. So weird. It's so weird and specific, yeah. These plant-based theorists. The question that lingers for us is, why would people past and present make all these bizarre things up about the Templars? To answer this, I want to introduce a new idea, one that I'm going to use for a few episodes here, and it's my own idea. I like to call it myth space. Myth space is a product of the amount of interest a person, place, or thing generates multiplied by how little we know about it. I don't know much about what crickets do during the day, but I also don't care. So there aren't many myths about the daily lives of crickets. Hmm. Not a cricket player. I'm sure they're very interesting and nice people, but I'm also supremely bored by that. So It takes such a long time. <clears throat> a knight Templar, on the other hand, is super cool, perhaps even more so in the modern world than in their own time. And because they're part of the medieval world, which is not especially well documented, there's substantial spaces to imagine into their lives good things or bad things, depending on our inclinations and motives. In their own time period, the Templars were slightly less hidden, but still had their headquarters in the Holy Land, far from Western Europe, weren't living in London town, uh, and all our feudal estates are so far away, uh, in their little cloistered castles far away from European life, we're even in the medieval period going to develop legends about them. Legends grow in the vast myth spaces between the Templars, their contemporaries, and us today. So yes, I did make this theory up myself, but I can do that. I'm a scholar. And that's what scholars do. We make up theories to help us explain stuff. You have a degree, so it's okay. Yep, I've, I've got it. That's my license to myth space, to term, to term things. So myth space is particularly useful for making sense of all the conspiracy theorizing that goes on around things occult. And in the case of the Templars, just outside the ordinary. There may be scholars who talk along similar lines. James Fernandez, for example, discusses the inchoate. Folklore scholars like Linda Digg, Dan Ben Amos have lots of ideas about myth and legend. But I'm not really trying to participate in those conversations. I just want an easy tool to help us understand how the occult conspiracy works. And this idea of myth space is the easiest way for me to get to the heart of things. For quite a while, medieval Europe imagined good things into the Templars' myth space. They were superheroes as long as the culture trusted them. But when that trust eroded, the myth turned bleak and damning. As Philippe the Fair's anti-crusader crusade shows, this was happening across the church. Monastic orders had been separated from the daily life of the laity in their own cloistered spaces where they lived their own cloistered lives, theoretically full of secrets. But in the minds of most medieval people, those monks were harmless at worst and admirable at best. That is, until the princes of Europe began to turn against them, slapping around popes and persecuting the church's armies. The Templars were monks with swords, and so they got swept up in this effort to turn the myth dark. Their secrets suddenly became interesting, 
and Philippe's in, and if we parse them through Philippe's invective, they became blasphemous. The monks and Templars' secret places have only expanded with the passage of time. We know less about the Templars than many people would like to know. They are super interesting. An institution of militant monks housed at the Temple of the Rock in the heart of Jerusalem involved in seven crusades and executed by a French king for acts of heresy involving anuses. They're so freaking cool. But we don't actually know very much about them. This is true of most medieval people and groups. While there is documentary evidence and artifacts from the lives of medieval people, what we can know about them is far more spare than what we can know about people closer in history to us, in part because the closer we get to the present moment, the more documentation was generated with rising literary, uh, literacy rates, and, and more likely uh, there were documents that survived. For the Templars, the problem of evidence is compounded by the loss of their archive. The Templars would have made every effort to maintain that archive. It contained their mortgages and loans, as well as their charter. When Jerusalem fell, they moved it to Acre. But with the fall of Acre, we know that the hospitalers got their hospital archive the heck out. And historians guess that probably the Templars got their archive out too, moving it to Cyprus. The hospitalers took over the Templars' possessions in 1312 when the order was disbanded, but they didn't move the Templars' documents when they relocated to Malta, and they were likely destroyed by the Ottomans when they overran the island in 1571. So, the lack of an archive compounds the Templars' inadvertent historical secrecy and leaves ample room to imagine. And in that space, people looking back have found everything from an ages-old satanic plot to the Holy Grail. They don't say any of that on the History Channel, that's for sure. Bringing you the real history here. Yes. Because we are not supported by corporate America. We're supported by our patrons. This is yeah. the real truth. So why is it that the Templars, is it just because they are, because of the Crusades, that it's just assumed that they have all these artifacts? We didn't really, like, we kind of talked about it, but not really. Like, what do you mean, the like Holy Grail and all this? Like, they get caught up in all these conspiracies because they, like, had all of these different artifacts, like that cloth with Jesus on it, the, the Shroud spear, of Turin. Yeah, like Spear of Destiny at one point, weren't they supposed to have that? Like, it's it's oh, really proximity, yeah. Right. They're the Christians who were around in the region where these artifacts would have existed, and sort of the last ones we would think of who would have escaped with them. I mean, we're, but there were, a bunch, there were a bunch of people there who just weren't like super cool knights in, in, with three yeah. horses and fancy outfits and stuff. So. so obviously you would want them to wait. So you would want them to have those things. Nobody would care if it was just like a random Joe with the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> but wouldn't people... This is Pete. Uh, he's, uh, he's part of the uh, Potter's Guild. It's the <laughs> Potter's Guild who's holding on to everything. And you it think, gives them sorry. Oh no, you're fine. And it gives them a little more more credence if it's like a well known order, like that actually had like papal support. If, they, if these, that's where these artifacts came from. If the Pope had it, then that would be even more. Why would the Pope let them keep it? That's a good question. I mean, if it was in the because if it's Templar possession, then it's the Pope's possession. Right. Uh, I mean, I think the other thing with the Templars is all this treasure that they had mm. literally in boats, yeah. <laughs> waiting to pay. <laughs> For the you know Crusader armies, uh, so I mean, there's just uh, they've got the, the Treasure Association plus the Holy Land Association plus they're super cool and interesting equals they have the Holy Grail. 
All right, let's get to our sources uh, for today. Uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia, thank you. Uh-huh. The Templars, colon, The History and the Myth by Michael Haig. Evelyn Lord's Knights Templar in England, and the article A Heresy of State, Philippe the Fair, uh, The Trial of the Perfidious Templar in the Pontificalization of the French Monarchy by Julien Théory in the Journal of Medieval Religious Cultures, volume 39, number 2, 2013. <laughs> and now that I've moved the sources to the end, I'm feeling bold, like I can just go wow, ahead and just yeah, dig on full. in. You have reached the Alchemical Actors Hermetic Hotline. At the moment, the hotline has gone cold. If you are having a hermetic emergency, please hang up and DM us on Instagram. Otherwise, please leave a message at the sound of the tone. Rob? Uh, R- Rob here. Uh, this is this is you. Uh, this is to remind you to uh, go ahead and uh, introduce the hermetic hotline uh, on the next episode of the podcast, uh, this is a brand new segment for the uh, for the third year there on the podcast. So you want to let people know uh, what the heck we're doing. Uh, so say something like, uh, you know, we got we got the new phone. Then uh, it's a the old school phone, so we had to hook it up to an answering machine. And uh, and uh, this is our hotline for the uh, alchemical actors. Anyone who's involved in the alchemical actors, if they're having an alchemical issue, uh, to call in and uh, and leave a message. Uh, so, so this is uh, we're going to play that out uh, on the airwaves because uh, uh, we don't believe in privacy here at the Alchemical Actors. Uh, so, yeah, I think that'll do it. Is there anything else you should say? Well, you can think about it in the meantime. This is Rob here. You. Okay, bye. Greetings, Doctor Rob, Master Podcaster of the Dark Art of Occult Tomfoolery. Church secrets here. You know who doesn't want to believe in a, the global conspiracy to turn us all into a frog-licking group of sex orgianics? A heathen! A heathen who wants to lick frogs! Hey, Rob. So, it's Bree. Um, I'm calling because I, I took John outside for a cookout, um, but my intention was to cook him. And, uh, oh, oh, shit, the police are here. I'm... Hey, okay, it's just, this is my religious right here. This is my freedom. I. Dr. Rob, you there? Church secrets here. You want to know what I think of the Knights Templar? Heathens! You don't think they've all come to America? Then how do you explain the hippies? Of course those dirty, tree-hugging Templars came to America with all their marijuanas and their longs hair and their buckle shoes. They came all the way on the Nita and the Pinata with the Pilgrims! Who, by the way, we're also heathens! They came all the way across the Atlantic, carting along the unholy head of Jim Morrison that they dug out of a cemetery in Paris. I bet you didn't know Jim Morrison was buried in Paris. Well, he isn't. N- not his head anyway. On account of them, dirty hippie Knights Templar dug it up and brought it all the way to America, where they could worship it with their butts out! I bet you're thinking to yourself, I'd like to interview that head of Jim Morrison. Well, the only reason you're thinking that is because you're a heathen! Anyway, you, you can't. It's buried under the White House. Also at Oak Island. It's both places on account of Illuminati magic. You're a heathen! Alright, let's open up the old order of confessors. 
Cathedral of the Blood shared a theory that uh, the Knights Templar were destroyed by the representatives of the Gnostic Demiurge because they were introduced to Sufism, and through Sufism discovered the higher truth or Gnosis liberating them from the Demiurge's temporal prison, and then presumably Philippe got all up in arms about it and killed him. That's a lot to unpack. Yeah, so the Sufis we talked about in our Blavatsky series a little bit, they were uh, from India, compromisers between Hinduism and, and Islam sort of created this unity movement. And so I guess in theory, Templars are hanging out with the Muslims, or at least, you know, beating them up out in the fields there. They also had some alliances with different Muslim groups. So I guess they could have caught the Sufism from them which you know came from India and then sounds like a cold <laughs> you caught it but it's a cold that liberates your mind yes. uh, and then after that uh, Philippe found out they done caught the sufism and he uh, killed them yeah that's the idea anyway interesting it's an interesting pr- approach it i is. thought it was an interesting idea that that these these were actually the victims of uh anti of a of an evil conspiracy to destroy the enlightened yeah. Sort of turns the whole thing on its head. I guess that would fit with Gnosticism, that there would be, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Secrets. Yeah. Yeah. Ronnie Lane shared a CERN doomsday theory. CERN is the where the Large Hadron Collider, or somehow it is the Large Hadron Collider. They're tied into that. Uh, particle accelerator. Quantum physical things are happening. So Ronnie says there is an idea that the... Uh, so this is going back to your episode, Olivia. Uh, yes. That the bit. colliding particles in the Large Hadron Collider would form something called strangelets, which are exotic forms of matter that would infect regular matter and turn everything into strangelets. That's such a cool word. Strangelets. So how how's this tie-in with you? Well, I think... I guess it would make some sense because from I didn't do too much research, but just from looking into the Sherry Shriner stuff <laughs> on this particular issue, right? On yes, yes, CERN right, itself, okay, but um, it's both. I believe the the name of the company, the nuclear whatever company that they are, but also the technology I think behind it or the science behind it, but. It basically, it got shut down, I believe, in Italy, I think, because people thought that it was opening up the portal to hell, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, the gates, CERN was the gates of hell opening, and if people let this continue, that everyone was just going to (laughs) die. This would be letting the strange out. Yeah, so I guess that that would be the the strange. What would change about us? I don't know. Not much. Yeah, we'd just be us, still be us doing this thing, the world would be slightly stranger. Yeah. Probably the podcast would do better. I'd probably start wearing color more. Oh, this would be the cool kids. We would be the cool kids. Yeah. 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 Cool. I don't know if I'd like that. No? I think I'd probably have to flip the whole script and do do the opposite. Oh. The uncool kids. What would you do? I guess we'd become church secrets. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Um, um. (laughs) We'd all wear, you know cardigans and stuff i don't even know oh god i'll bring back out all my church clothes tuck in our shirts and stuff i burned all mine eric h uh is commenting on the uh boxes remember aubrey brought up these boxes on people's heads yeah i I do vaguely i said what do you know about the cobble she was like they wear boxes on their heads and they have strings so (laughs) i mean (laughs) eric h very kind listener trying to help us understand what the heck aubrey meant by that so (laughs) 
Uh, Eric says, I think the boxes on the head uh, that we're talking about is the tefillin, uh, which is central Jewish ornament during prayer services that traditionally input men put on that uh, have the most important, and they do their most important prayers inside these boxes, the tefillin. So you get in the box and you do your prayers in secret. Uh, they are not specific to the Kabbalists, uh, popularized more by the Hasids or uh, spiritual revival Jewish groups, uh, although he says they're also important because they contain the name of God, uh, which uh, does have meaning to the Kabbalists. Uh, so only the Kabbalists, I guess. Well, well not only the Kabbalists, but the Kabbalists are trying to use, use the name of God, so that might be how Aubrey got the Tefillin and got that all mixed together. She was going somewhere. She was. She was. She was trying in the right ballpark, uh, right city where the game is being played, give or take. I'll close up that order of confessors. I hereby adjourn and declare close the meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Joining us with voices today, we had Sean Priest. Also, Dan Rosendale, and uh, we had James Kaplanges and Andrew Mims uh, bringing up the various characters of the medieval Templar world. Also, Hunter Sheeler. Joining us around the circle, uh, we had uh, Johnny Cook, patron progenitor. Hello. And goodbye. Goodbye. All right, there it is. Uh, we had Jacob Wheatley, Knight of the Dangling Serpent. Huzzah? Is that is that how you would say huzzah backwards? That's how I. It's very close. It's close to huzzah. Huzzah. And Olivia Literal, (laughs) Grand Master of the Order. Goodbye, everyone. Me, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors. We are recorded at the Cadby Theater on Maryland's scenic eastern shore at Chesapeake College. Uh, next time, here on A Call Confessions, we will be visiting the Rosicrucians, or at least we'll be trying to, because they're hard to find, because they probably didn't exist. But we're going to hang out outside their house and call their names a lot. Oh, I'm going to throw rocks at their window. I was thinking of bringing a radio. <gasps> oh. Catch you next time here on Occult Confessions. Hot damn, we're peasants. <laughs> 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 yes, we are. <laughs>